Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's s-e-changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in the headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 39, with the title, Viewing Gender Through a Fresh Perspective. And I have the absolute honor and privilege to be joined by Antoinette Dale Henderson. Antoinette describes herself as a TEDx speaker, a two-time author, and founder of the Gravitas Programme. When I asked Antoinette to describe her superpower, she said she always chooses to see the best in people and her superpower is enabling others to see that in themselves. Hello, Antoinette. Welcome to the show. Hello, Joanne. It's amazing to be here. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. We've known each other a couple of years and uh, through lockdown, we've not had the chance to catch up. So this is, this is going to be really amazing. So yeah. thank you for coming on. I'm looking forward to it. So, I call this episode Viewing Gender Through a Fresh Perspective. What does that mean to you? Well, it's interesting because I have, over the past three years or so, found myself working more and more in the space of um, helping lead women in leadership really further their careers. And, and that really came as a result of my work in the corporate world. So I've worked with men and women, um, anybody. And, you know, what, what I noticed was that it was often women who are coming to me and saying, I'm experiencing confidence issues. I'm experiencing, you know, that second pandemic of the 21st century. I'm experiencing imposter syndrome, or I'm really holding myself back and I, I need your help. And so I was inspired, um, probably about three years ago to, to start looking at how I could put together some programs and, and really some solutions to help further women in business. And that coincided with the whole Me Too movement where um, women started to call out really inappropriate behavior and, and stand up for themselves and, and, and say enough is enough. Um, and then at the same time, looking at um, the gender pay gap, that, that was also starting to happen uh, about two years ago. And so that inspired me to write my second book, which is uh, Power Up, The Smart Woman's Guide to Unleashing Their Perspective. And and so that's gone really, really well. And, and the TEDx came out of that book. And, you know, there's been a big focus for me. You know, I, as I say, I, I work with everyone, um, particularly in the leadership space, but I did find myself working more and more with women and, and really looking at that um, theme of gender equality. And my take on on power is that I think traditionally that there's different perspectives on what power is. So you, you've got the more sort of traditionally masculine power, which is very strong and directive and powerful. And then you've got the more female power, which is traditionally more about emotional intelligence and influence. And you can even hear through my voice when I describe each of those two ends of the spectrum, you know, that there's a much more of a softness associated with with the, with the perception around um, female power. And, 
And I I thought, well, why on earth should it be like that? Why shouldn't everyone be able to access that full range? Why could why shouldn't everyone learn from everyone else and be able to tap into their full ranges of power? And so, yeah, a lot of the perspective was around why should it be polarizing? Why should it be binary? Why should it be one thing or another? And so I was already started to look at, at, at what gender is and what it means. But still at the same time, you know, I was talking about men and women and, and looking at it through fresh eyes. This has been a very, very recent thing for me because clearly, I mean, we, we met about three years ago, didn't we? And I, I saw you speak and you moved me to tears, actually, the first time I saw you speak, Joanne. And listening to your perspective and your story and the people that you work with and represent and, and the whole perspective around trans and non-binary and what that means – already started to just open up my eyes. And then more recently, I've got two daughters, right? 14, 17. And my youngest, the 14 year old more recently has started to, they both go, well, well, she goes to a girl's school. Um, the other one has moved on and she now goes to what originally was a boy's school and now is mixed because she's doing A-levels. But the point is, is that what, what she was doing was um, starting to question why is it that teachers should refer to them all as girls? And why is it that that it should be so simple as the two pronouns? And, and how about, you know, opening up people's eyes and the teachers and the pupils and everyone around them to put the perspective that not everyone subscribes to that and, and that actually everyone has a right to choose where they are, whoever they are and however they are. And so that that's really the fresh perspective on gender that that really my eyes are being opened up to now through my own children and through where I think the world is going. That's fascinating to hear because we as parents often feel we're the ones to do the educating. But what we're learning now is that we are learning so much more from our children about their world and about their future. And we're now more responsive. And I think maybe when we go back to our childhood, we didn't believe as children we had that empowerment, did we? We would tend to do as we're told if, if, if we don't speak, if we're not spoken to, it's kind of attitude. But now we're now empowering our children in a different way to speak up, aren't we? That's right. And um, and I think that's a beautiful thing. And, and I'm so grateful. I trained to be a coach when my youngest was about two. And I'm so grateful that I did that because when I did that, I learned to really listen and learn to really just have that curiosity around the fact that everyone is different and everyone deserves the right to have their own opinions and to be able to express it, which kind of inspires a lot of what I do in my professional world. And so I learned and I trained to do that. And and I really hope that that kind of finds its way into the way that I, I am a parent and, and how I, yeah, how I do empower my young, the young people around me. Yeah, it's, it's taken several centuries of programming by the state, by the media, by Hollywood, to just re- reinforce this gender binary, the uh, the brave, strong man and the, the soft, fragrant woman, if you like. And that's been reinforced. You look at some of the, the Disney cartoons of yesteryear, the Snow White, the Prince Charming, the, the helpless woman, the saved, saved by the man, slay the dragon stuff. We've really had that programmed into us for, for decades and decades and decades. And it's really hard to overcome those stereotypes now, isn't it? It really is. But I think it, it is interesting that 
corporates are, are waking up to the potential of not thinking that way. I think it's Pixar. I think they've got a new movie that they've come up where they've got a, a non-binary um, person who's being featured and 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 then you look at some of the toy manufacturers and then they're they're less like that you know you you'll have you'll have a mix up you won't just have the barbies with like the big boobs and the tiny little waist and the kind of pink outfit and all of that but they are mixing up a lot more now and so i think that it's it's all accelerating so i'm i'm fascinated to to be able to kind of project into the future to see where we're all going um but I think if I if I look back to when I was um, a child and going through being being a teenager and stuff like that, I mean, being gay was illegal, right? And you know, and and hidden away. And I mean, my, my uncle was gay, and he died of AIDS. And at that time, my parents could not tell anybody. You know, it was secret. It was taboo, and it was so. And and now, you know, that that's at least in my my view and in, in the world that I operate in that that just isn't even a thing anymore so i think everything is changing and i think if if we want to really live in this world we we all need to kind of go into it with an open mind um yeah i mean do you think the world of work is is really evolving and changing i mean i read a Mary Porter's book you know work like a woman yeah i've got it there, yeah there seems to be that perception that in order to succeed as a woman, you have to almost adopt male traits, mm. the loudness, the confidence. And as you said, the feminine power comes for EQ and collaboration, different sets of skills. Are we losing that sometimes when we're trying to create environments where women feel they have to succeed as a man with male traits? Or are we, are we able to push back? I think that has traditionally been the case and and I know that there are people out there who will will train women to um speak with a deeper voice or to you know, look at bringing in more sort of masculine clothing and but I actually think that's I think that I hope that that's in the past now and so I think the more enlightened corporates are are, are much more open minded when it comes to that kind of thing now you know, I, I work with, with men and women. And it, what I will say is that when it comes to gravitas, you know, my definition of that is, you know, commanding respect, getting taken seriously, standing out from the crowd, then you, you have to think about your voice and you have to think about the messages that you're communicating. And so, and, and I look at the difference between how approachability comes across and, you know, how, how that comes across through your voice. And you can already hear me as I'm saying it, you know, my voice goes lighter. It might, it might go up at the end of the sentence because it's, it's got that lightness. But if people want to have that credibility and that gravitas, then it will naturally, your voice will naturally go down. And, you know, I, I do share that with everybody in all my classes because it's, it, it, it does make an impact, but that's not about becoming more man. It's, it's just about playing with depth and gravity and seriousness and authority. And, and that does come with, with, with having a more powerful voice. I've heard that before from someone. They talked about up talk, which is where you speak, you go higher at the end of the sentence. And that almost implies a lack of confidence or you're asking a question. Mm. You tend to finish a question with an up. And so having the power and closure is almost a down talk, isn't it? Where you, you, you land that. Exactly. And root it. 
Exactly. It's interesting. Earlier this week, I was, <laughs> I was running a session and I had three Aussies on the program. And uh, <laughs> so I was describing this. It's like, you know, the uptick, it does sound like every statement becomes a question because you're asking, but you might not be asking. And so actually, you know, if you want to make a point and they're like, geez, you know, you're describing the Aussie accent here, <laughs> whether it's Aussie or whether it's from LA or whether it's any teenager, <laughs> you know, that uptick is, um, yeah, I mean, you, you don't want people to become inauthentic or sound like robots, but it's just knowing if you really want to land a point, then if your voice goes down at the end of the point, then it will land. Yes, because it's a full stop, isn't it? It really is a, a, a close. And if you want to get that point, yeah, it, it's a real divider. I mean, I, I made a conscious decision when I gender transitioned four or five years ago. I toyed with my voice, the, the confidence I had and whether I wanted to change my voice to sound more feminine because of voice coaching. And I, I, I decided that it was my voice and I didn't want to change who I was that much for everybody else. You know, I changed my appearance, my identity, everything else, but the thought of changing my voice, it, it would just overburden my thought process. I'd always have to be conscious of it. always have to be thinking about how I was speaking. And I decided that I was going to keep my voice and, in some ways, I guess it's an advantage because I still have that, that, that deep gravitas about it, but I'm not, I don't uptick at the end generally unless I'm, I am asking a question. And also it does create a little bit of shock and awe when I'm on stage and I stand there and hold that pause at the beginning before I speak. And I've had a number of people go, who've literally sat back in their chair going, wow, where did that voice come from? Wasn't expecting that completely. So it, it's a great attention grabber. So I've learned to use it to my advantage and put up with the, if you like, the misgendering or the confusion it causes negatively, if you like, um, because our voice and the way we present is very, very powerful, isn't it? It is, yeah, and yeah, it's interesting. I, I've, 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 I've thought about my voice as well, and 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 if you think of gravitas you know it's sometimes people's perception of gravitas is it's a statesman like it's a statesman like quality that's you know how it was originally defined back in roman times and so the perception that the traditional perception could be is that if you've got gravitas then you you are a man and you know statesman like quality has emerged like a fine wine over the years and you've got the silver hair and all of that Clearly, I'm never going to be any of those things. You know, as a fairly petite female, blonde female, you know. So, but my take on it is that yeah, that's great. And so, one of the first edition of the book, I chose to put my face on the front to say anyone can have gravitas. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. You know, you can find a way of developing it, find your own way of developing it. Um, and I, I like that shock and awe. You know, I, if you if you do the same as everybody else and and conform to what people are expecting, then you just kind of bland. You become bland and you merge into the background. <laughs> I mean, over the last few years, I've I've had many conversations with other women, you know, either in the bar after the event or in coffee breaks, wherever you're talking. I've met many women who have a confidence find they're not being heard and, and of course my socialized brain is listening to the way they're talking thinking well i can completely understand why you're not getting heard because 
you don't have any gravitas in your voice. You don't have any your sentences aren't structured in a way where I know what you want. They're kind of drifting, and uh, and I, I think that is some of the some of the challenges that many women I've I've spoken to who have kind of lack of confidence is they don't know how to be confident to start with, and put themselves in a situation where they speak with authority that, that maybe the uptick is occurring because of that nervousness or that that anxiousness they feel about rejection or or being talked over maybe yeah yeah and, and I think that that can be the case with men and women um and and I, I think that it, it takes practice and it's absolutely learnable I, I think what people often do is they they feel like once they finally got the spotlight they feel like they they, they go overboard they're trying to justify they had all of the information and they just they go around the houses and and the, the nuggets of information or they, they get lost. I think when it comes to women and, and when I wrote the book, um, Power Up, I, I, I was really clear that I wanted to get tangible evidence and, and real research to back up what I was saying because, I, you know, I wanted to make sure that it, it, the research demonstrates this and not just like that, that sort of traditional perspective of it's harder for women. <laughs> right. Cause you know, there's a big backlash on that as well. And, Female conditioning, you know, the way that girls are brought up, like you were talking about before, you know, we we do get told to sit still, be quiet, not make a fuss, you know, be pretty, you know, go play nicely. And and girls are, you know, girls are encouraged and conditioned in that way. Whereas boys, you know, they go run outside, play, be loud, get into fisticuffs, and that's almost celebrated as well and so you know those those roles or those expectations get formed really really early on so that happens and and then and so you know there's that society's conditioning and so I, I talk about that there's the glass ceiling which you know there's society's perspectives on on to the extent to which women can progress and develop within within organizations and who is expected to be at the top of those organizations there's the glass ceiling but there's also glass bricks that women almost have in their own head that stop themselves from putting themselves out there so that conditioning things like perfectionism um imposter syndrome trying too hard being the good girl, these are all glass bricks which get in the way. So it's not surprisingly that when the woman finally gets a chance to speak, it comes out jumbled and there's all of this stuff that gets in the way. But it doesn't mean that it has to be the case. You know, it, it, It's about how do you learn to overcome that? How do you structure your thinking? How do you get clarity in your thinking? And how do you use some of those techniques around being heard? Things like pausing to make sure your message lands. I completely agree. I, I've had so many more conversations with other women in the last three or four years than I ever had in, in earlier in my life. And I've met some amazingly strong, powerful women who don't speak loudly. They don't speak with any aggression or pushiness, but they're just so thoughtful, so considered, and they, they really are at the top of their game. And they, they, they show me every day that you can succeed by really being authentic and feminine, but know your mind. And uh, I'm not saying 
don't suffer fools. But, but be, be wary of the fact that people are going to maybe look down at you or undervalue you, but hold your ground, hold that strain and, and say, no, I am good enough. And my opinion is valid. And I, I, as I, I have lots of conversations with women and I really see that and respect that in them. And it's, uh, yeah. And, and, and it's learned though. It's for all of us, it's learned. It, it comes over time. But I think, you know, they're more powerful blockers in the way for women because of what I've just described there than there are for men. And and I meet a lot of women who say, oh, God, I wish I'd met you 30 years ago. You know, I've, I've wasted so much time getting in my own way. If only I knew some of these things when I was in my 20s, a lot of the meandering, you know, career-wise or, or, or vocally, you know, wouldn't have happened. Is it is it a male trait that men tend to be more competitive or more um, feudalistic towards each other? There's a lot more jockeying for hierarchy within within men that is about winning, con- conflicting, and, and 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 taking charge. Where women were more is this too stereotypical to say more collaborative, more nurturing, more respectful of each other. So we don't tend to get into those conflict conversations with each other. And men have been practicing this kind of bravado and socialized into that, which is why maybe women struggled in those, in those environments where they need to have a conflict or be forthright. That isn't a natural skill they've learned over the years. Yeah. Spot on. And and so, you know, I think it's, it's how do you approach conflict or challenging conversations? Do you go into them knowingly and um, choose to put yourself out there or, or do you shy away from them altogether? So th- th- there's that. It's the choice. It's how you behave, but it's also what happens afterwards because what often happens with women is that we'll hold on to things. We'll, we'll replay things that have happened and, and we'll, yeah, we'll, Whereas men will just kind of let them go. It's like there was a conflict, there was a <laughs> there was a disagreement, there was a, a bit of sparring, and then it's just gone. Whereas women will just hold on to that, and it will stop them from it then going into a similar situation after. Yeah, I, I see that from both sides, from both sides of my life. I, I see the difference in okay. the way that conversations are closed and resolved. Um, as you say, a couple of broken noses and it's a slap on the back and a pint and, and it's forgotten. Whereas women, it's a, it's a lifelong crutch or a lifelong uh, disagreement and it's really hard to resolve that cold argument, isn't it? The hot arguments resolve quickly. The cold arguments, once they freeze, they kind of set in and it's really hard to, to overcome those. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, and, and when women don't do that, that perhaps if they if they are colder or harder or more direct or stronger, then they they'll get labelled in all different ways. So they'll like either get labelled a bitch or they'll get labelled a you know a tyrant or they'll get labelled a, a queen bee. And um, and so you know a queen bee I guess syndrome is a slightly different thing because you know a woman has sort of decided to kind of put herself in that position and and she'll she'll trample over other people to get to that place so that's a slightly different thing but you, you kind of question what would be different if it were a man evidencing those kinds of behaviours and actually would those behaviours end up getting celebrated and, and enable that person to kind of rise up through the ranks 
um, as opposed to being held back. I don't know. It's, you know, expectations of what we think is the right way to be and, and isn't. And I think, you know, the fresh pair of eyes thing is thinking, well, why should it be like that? Why should any of it be like that? Why can't we all celebrate, you know, all, all of our differences? You know, think about emotional intelligence. I, I actually think that that is the superpower that we all need to develop and um, progress with. And I remember running a session a few years ago now, but it was for an investment bank and it was all men, 20 men and me. <laughs> and it was like, right, today we're going to explore in emotional intelligence. And you could see 20 pairs of eyes all rolling. It's like, what is this fluffy stuff we're going to talk about now? What was she going to be banging on about now? You know, and it's, and, and, and I think it has changed. I think it is evolving, but still there's that association that we place on the more intuitive powers that that they're softer or they're lighter or that they're, they're less valuable but actually i think it, the reverse is true that, i just pick up what you're saying about when we're trying to introduce men to the fluffier side of, of of eq then it reminds me i was i was on stage in san francisco and i was on a panel and the topic was effectively gender equality in the workplace how do we how do we level up um and i was asked the question and i, and I as i was asked the question i was thinking i looked out into the room and there must be 600 people here two blocks of 300 corridor down the middle i just looked around and said isn't part of the problem that we're talking about gender equality and the room is full of women there are no men in the audience where are the men and okay there's probably eight to 10 men in the entire room of 600 yeah. on a session about gender equality right. in the workplace. and gender equality racial equality disability equality is always occupied by the people with the characteristic yeah not by the by the allies and the enablers mm. and changing the wealth to be more gender equal to give more equity to women is actually a male challenge not a female challenge we know what we need we know what we want how do we get men to listen how do we get men in those conversations and so it's relevant to them it can't just be when a man has a daughter he suddenly becomes woke right. to the idea yeah, that's the yeah. excuse and now, now i've had a daughter i now get it well surely you should have got it 20 years ago why now yeah yes yeah and it I can relate to that so well and I remember when I launched the book and this was back in the day we were actually allowed to meet in in physical rooms um <laughs> I know I can't wait until we go back to that last January um I, I launched power up and we had 100 people in the room Within that hundred, we had um, Alan Stevens um, came, um, who's who's um, who's a speaker and and um, a, a coach and a good friend of mine. And he came, and I had the cameraman there. He was there, and my husband was there. Right, three men and ninety-seven women, and including my two daughters. And um, <laughs> we came to the Q and A, and and one of the first questions was. So, it, you know, it's great that we're looking at gender equality, but, you know, it, it, it's, there's, there's a lot of pressure on our young men these days. And if you look at the suicide rate and, you know, they're under a huge amount of pressure to how, how do they need to be? What does their role need to be now? And, and, and I, you know, totally get the question, totally agree with the question and answered the question. But before I did, I said, isn't it interesting 
that we've got a large majority of women in the audience here tonight. And we're talking about a, a book that is for women. And one of the first questions that guest gets asked is how can we make it better for our men? And so <laughs> that as well, it's like kind of preaching to the converted um, that you were describing, but also we, we as women, we want to make sure everybody is okay, almost to the detriment of ourselves. So back to the question of um, how how can we turn that around and, and does it always have to be when a man on the board has had a daughter who's had an experience who then has a word that he then thinks, oh, yeah, maybe we should look at that. You know, maybe we should look at our, our quotas. Um, <laughs> you know, what, what can we do? And what I find when I'm, when I'm invited to work in organizations, and I, I don't know whether you get the same thing, but often I get invited by, you know, where the gender equality group or, or where, you know, we're running a session for International Women's Day. And so, you know, th- it's like they're a sort of bolt on um, grassroots kind of group of people who want to do something about it. And so they, they have, I guess, a minimal share of voice and a, a minimal budget to pay for. And I'm like, what if, if you do really want to do that, then you need to do it top down, bottom up, grassroots, but also from the side as well, where you're looking at changing policies. You know, you look at, you need to look at the entire infrastructure of an organization, whichever element of diversity and inclusion we're talking about here. And so, yeah, it, I think it does require people to push back and, and go to actually what are the business benefits of doing this? You know, if you, if you look at a truly diverse, um, an inclusive workplace, look at the increased engagement, the in- increased um, retention of staff. You, you look at the, the results that people are delivering and, and, you know, you look at the staff surveys and look at how happy and fulfilled people are. Measure, you know, use the data to compare. That's how you do it. You can hear yeah, me I mean, fired up about this. <laughs> <laughs> right, picking up on something else you were saying earlier about the Me Too movement and how that kind of put a fire in your belly as well. And we still are not making tangible progress. I mean, we, we thought it was a, a middle-aged old white man problem. And now Noel Clark, the BAFTA award-winning black actor, producer, director, a younger person, a millennial, is now being called into question about his own treatment of his female colleagues, people uh, of his subordinate or whatever it may be. So it's not just an old white man problem is it, that we were talking about two or three years ago. Mm. Yeah, there's something going on wrong there, isn't there? Uh, you know, uh, you, you think about the role models and how they're behaving and, and what was perhaps perceived as okay before or, or actually what's happening that's, that's making people think that it's okay to behave like that. And, and, and there's been, yeah, there's, there's been some dramas at at my, my children's school recently, and there've been some um, attempted abductions as well. Um, and it's the way they've coming back and they're kind of reporting on how this has been covered in their schools and how it's been communicated. It's like, girls, you need, you need to watch out for yourselves. You need to keep yourself safe. And this is happening. Um, and, and they're furious. It's like, why should it be on our shoulders to keep ourselves safe? You know, where's the education of the boys around what is the right way to be? And, you know, that, that certainly is beyond my expertise, but I do think it's quite interesting how 
yeah, how, how and why this is happening. You see, men too easily forgive other men's behaviors because maybe inside their own head thinking, mm, yeah, I could have, that could have happened to me or mm, I could have overstepped. Is, do you think that's a, a, a thing? Maybe, maybe, you know, that, that phrase, boys will be boys, you know, it's just such a corrosive thing to say. I, I, I don't know. I think everyone's different and, and we have to sort of start with the people that we know and the people around us, the people we love. And, um, yeah. There are people, there are, the proportion of men who are vocal is a lot less than vocal women about, I'm not saying there aren't men talking out, but most of the, most of the people talking out about Noel Clark, talking out about institutional racism, et cetera, et cetera, tend to be black people. Most people talk about sexism, tend to be women. It's not the people who are on the, on the side of, I say the side of the problem, the people who have influence in that, in that space, in that privilege. Those aren't the people who are standing up and saying, yes, I could do better personally. I, I, I know I can do better and I'm going to do better from now on and I'm going to call it out as well. So we're not, we're not spreading that, that, that momentum through men, through white people, through able-bodied people. I was watching a program uh, on the television last night with Leanne from Little Mix talking about tokenism as a, as a black person in the, in the group and how the Sony media executives wouldn't meet and talk about the fact that she didn't have any black or, or non-white support within her crew and and just how she felt how she started to be feeling she's been tokenized as the token black girl for media and couple that with her gender with her sex with the fact she's a girl a woman and her color we're still propagating this and we can still see that the power is held by the rich white guy still and it's complicating it yes yeah and and absolutely and if we're thinking about kind of looking um at the world through a different pair of eyes of course that that demographic that you've just described there they don't see any need to look at the world through a different pair of eyes and actually for them it's it's threatening to do so because it 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 just knocks out where their whole worldview and their whole perspective on how things are and how things should be so you know it's fear-based and so they're going to hold on tooth and nail to what they know and what they have. And so I do think so um, with the way culture is evolving and and how young people, most young people are, are being educated and are thinking and are influencing one another. I do think that things are going to change and develop. And, um, yeah, from a values perspective, um, I, I think that things have, are, are moving on. I think that those kinds of old-fashioned behaviours and, and perspectives, you know, that eventually before too long, those people are going to retire. And, and I'd like to think, you know, looking to the future that, you know, that will be replaced by a, a much more open-minded way of looking at things. I think you're right. I think there's, a, you say, protectionism. I think there's a feeling that people... Are worried that they're going to lose what they've got, their their cozy world. They they fought hard to get where they are. They built up whatever they built up, and maybe they're concerned that people are going to come at them with pitchforks and burn their house as a as a as a racist or a sexist or whatever. And maybe they are. There is an element of protectionism, or maybe there's also an element of of naivety or ignorance that they really don't believe the problem is as bad as as people say it is. Maybe the 
I, I often hear people, well, racism isn't that bad. I, I, I've got black friends and they're not like that. Or I've known plenty of women and they're not talking in this way. Uh, and so do, do some women almost give permission to men to say it's not that bad? Are, are we, are we, is there no solidarity or, or when women don't experience sexual abuse, discrimination or oppression, they, they assume that everybody else is like them. And it's okay. They must be overreacting. Maybe if they grew up and became more mature, they'd be fine, or they dress differently, or they behave differently. Are, are other women effectively down talking the problems of other women? I, I think that can certainly be the case. Yeah, and um, yeah. So, so what do you do? Do you, do you try and like turn around everybody who who is is in denial or holding back or disagreeing? Do you, do you try and like change all of their minds, or do, or do you try and go with the people who are who are um, already um, converted and, and um, supportive of, of the message? What do you do? And and I, I actually think, do you know, what? I think the story, the answer is about telling stories telling actual stories of people's true experiences and painting pictures of what it actually is like so that people can relate to it and and doing it rather than doing it in a preachy way. Because if someone tells you what to think or what to do, and you see this in social media all the time, then everyone is, you know, the other person is just going to dig their heels in and resist. Whereas if you do it kind of around the back door through telling stories and evoking images and you know, painting pictures, then then people are going to be much more open to to starting to think about things in a different way. I completely agree. I, I run quite a few workshops around inclusion and belonging, conscious bias, and the most powerful element of those is when I have the privilege of hearing the stories of people on the workshop. They're brave. They stand up and say, this has happened to me. I've had people who are black talking about being stopped and searched, people who are black who talk about being followed around supermarkets, other people who are black who talk about various aspects of being denied access to, to services or just feeling like they're always a threat. And I've had young women who actually aren't that young, they're in their 30s, are being talked down to because they appear young. They're, they're, they're shorter, they're smaller, they've got a, a very young-looking face or their hairstyle is long, which makes them look like they're in their early 20s. And how they've been passed over, spoken over, assumes they were the junior when, rather than being the manager. And just hearing these constant experience stories where the pattern is always the same. It can't be individuals making this up. But I think we heard the story when we were talking about Sarah Everard, you know, the hashtag is not all men. But then that was repeated by the hashtag, yes, but it is all women. Every woman has a story. Every woman has, could talk about how they've been denied opportunities or, or there's been overt sexism. And even women that say, well, I'm okay, have probably become socialized into believing that what happened to them was, was okay. It's just the way women are. And that's what happens to women. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. And, and, and I think when you start to tell those stories, then people, they remember, they, they think, actually, no, I do remember when that happened to me. And in fact, whether, whether we, you know, we represent a protected characteristic or not, we will, all of us have had some experience at some point in our lives where we felt powerless or we felt, um, squashed or, 
or we felt like we couldn't actually express ourselves and, and we, we felt bullied in some way. And, you know, when, when you take people to that experience and then they relate to it, if you can then attach a message around, you know, how can we ensure that this doesn't happen to other people? That's when you start to inspire change. And, and, for, and for me, the, the story that I told at the start of my TEDx, it's an emotional story and I'd never told it before. And it was um, my first day at primary school. And um, so I grew up just speaking French. And it was my first day at school and it was an English school. So I, I didn't understand anything that anyone was saying. And it was loud and people were running everywhere and I didn't know where to go. And I remember lunchtime, <laughs> I had this food put in front of me and I was like, oh, what on earth is this? And I just didn't know what to do with it because it was so foreign to me. And I, I remember spitting out some of the food into a water beaker and the teacher came up shouting at me, like, oh, what have you done? That's disgusting. All these children looking at me and just feeling completely powerless to speak or defend or say anything. That feeling and feeling gagged, actually, you know, that feeling that you just can't speak. And I think that that feeling is the feeling that you get when someone is imposing their power over you and you're powerless to do something about it, whether you're being attacked or verbally or, you know, overtly or whatever it is, that feeling that you're powerless is, is just such a horrible feeling. And we have all had it. And I think what people, some people do is when they, when they have experienced that, they kind of toughen up and they think, right, my response to that is I, I will never let that happen to me again. So they then become the person who has the power over others, they exert their force and their power, and then it gets perpetuated. And so it's that feeling of vulnerability, that fear, I think, that stops people from, um, yeah, from, from, from allowing themselves to be vulnerable. And I think if, if, you, if you tap into that, if you meet people at a place like that, then if you do that, you can bring people around. Mm. Yeah, I think so too, I think for sure. Yeah. So COVID has been a major, in my opinion, it's really set back gender equality in the workplace yes. and yeah. in, in the home environment. Oh, we, we talk about the rise of violence against women and girls because of the lockdown, because of those tension situations, the amount of uh, refugees that have provided support now to, to women who have suffered domestic abuse at home. But also from from work perspective is that it's set back careers because women and I, and let's let's put it out there there are many relationships where there are either same sex couples who are men there are, there are modern families where the man and the woman share responsibility or the man does most of the care so I'm not talking about those great relationships I'm talking about the, the typical majority of the relationships that still exist where the woman is still the primary educator, the primary caregiver, the primary home admin person. And the extra burden through lockdown has meant that these people, these women cannot focus on their career. They've maybe lost their position in the queue for promotion, opportunity, um, training, development, or they're really just barely treading water in their role. How, how do you see that? The society and the work world of work correcting this because we've got to play catch up now. Mm. 
I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, there's there's evidence to show that um, the pandemic kind of put uh, gender equality back by a decade for all the reasons that you've just described there, where um, in extreme cases, women have had or have felt like they've had to make the decision to step away from their career, stop working altogether to take on those care um, responsibilities um, at home. And and actually, another stat which is quite interesting is that um, in the in the pandemic, if you look at people um, who are in research, the submission of research papers actually increased by men. So more men um, submitted clinical papers, you know, research papers um, to be published in clinical papers compared to women where the research papers decreased. So there's something interesting going on there with what people were doing with the time that they had when they were working from home. Um, But as far as what can we do about it is concerned, you know, I've certainly noticed coaching um, women and just eyeballing them, you know, through the screen and seeing them in their home environment, just at their complete wits end with juggling, um, homeschooling and holding down a high powered, um, high stress job and, and with no time left for themselves at all, no time for anything really. And so it, it's no, it's no wonder that, you know, a lot of people have just found it too hard and, and stepped away. You know, I, I certainly remember in the career that I had, I, I was in, um, I worked in PR communications before I set my business up. We got to sort of, um, the age of where women were starting to have families and taking on career responsibilities. It's like, where have all the women gone? Because it would just become too hard to hold down a a challenging job that's full of um, global travel and um, really, really long hours, pitching the business, all of that. Impossible to do that with a young family, which is one of the reasons why I set my business up, actually, because I just couldn't do all of that and have a family at the same time. So you you kind of... um, Increase you multiply all of that with with the um, pressures that we've had over this past year, and it's no wonder that gender equality has been set back. What can we do about it? Well, I have observed that what a lot of the more enlightened organisations are doing is they're really looking at how can they create um, an environment of trust. Um, where people, any, you know, people can, um, work more flexibly and as long as they're delivering results, you know, it doesn't matter actually how many hours they're doing or how they're doing it or where they're doing it. None of it matters as long as they're delivering results. So I, I think that the more successful organizations and the more attractive organizations for people are going to be the ones which are going to make life easier for people as a result of the pandemic. Because in that sense, we've got the pandemic to thank for that. Hopefully cultural change within organizations is going to move in that direction. I hope you're right. Um, I'm still seeing so many examples of workplaces trying to fall back into the traditional back to the office and there's still this kind of, if I can't see you, I can't trust you. And that command and control, that old school way of working where we measure people on presenteeism, time sat at the desk. And we're, st- we're still not, even after the, even after the pandemic, we're, st- we're still, a lot of businesses still haven't learned about how they can manage people asynchronously, set, set work, set milestones, set objectives, not being constantly in, interactive meetings you know we can 
message people and get responses tomorrow. Set set the agenda so that you don't have to keep track on everybody day by day or minute by minute. But this this is still going on, and I, I see so much pressure now to push people back into the office without considering the anxiety. I mean, we're still even on the news today and last night. We're talking about this Indian variant variant of the COVID. I would predict we're still not going to be allowed on public transport or in shops without masks for a a while, wherever that while may be. So people's journey to work isn't going to be as it was. People's workplace experience isn't as it was. You know, there's no longer do we get each other coffee because we have to have our own cup. There's glass screens around everything. There's We're socially distanced in our office. So people have got anxiety now about going back into the workplace. And just by the very nature of how women and we are socialized, we have more anxiety because we're worried about our impact on others, our caring responsibilities, our elderly parents, our children. We're not self-centered. We're not a man often just thinks about themselves and go, I'll be fine and minimizes the risk. So the difference in approach to return to the office is completely different. From a, from a gender perspective, I believe. And we've got to be careful we don't ignore the anxieties and the feelings of women pushing themselves back into an environment where their mental health, their their well-being is going to be suffer as a result of this. I think, as you say, some companies are looking holistically at people, speaking to people as individuals, understanding their anxieties, and building a work shape that works for them rather than it being a cookie cutter, everybody's in the office, everybody does this. And I think that's going to define the good companies and the bad companies is how person-centric they are and how they listen and really communicate with their people about what is the best way of working for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was speaking to a, a head of HR earlier this week um, and she was saying it's 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 really challenging actually for people working in HR at the moment because they've got such a wide spectrum of people um, who are working for them. So for, for people from one extreme where people are like, I don't see what the problem is. I'm sure we'll all go back to the office now anyway and it's going to be fine and let's, let's just crack on and get bitten moving again all the way to the other extreme where people are, are still terrified of even leaving their homes. And so how can you be inclusive um, and cater to that entire spectrum of people? And, and they simply don't know the answer to that question, <laughs> you know? Um, but ultimately there, there needs to be some form of decision or stake in the ground. Um, but how are they going to do that? So you might have people who, who are happy in the office. They forget to put a mask on. And then, you know, they meet someone else who, who is, who is really out of their comfort zone with that. So, and then it's, it's, it then becomes the responsibility of the individuals to be assertive enough to say, I need you to put your mask on now, which is a challenge in itself. You know, you you see it on public transport all the time. So I don't know, it's a unique challenge, isn't it? None of us have ever done anything like this before. So yeah, be fascinating. My wife was furloughed. My wife was furloughed in the early stages. And then she she was, I say forced, she was put in a position where she had to return to the office on her own while, they, while other people were fellows. So she was literally the only person permanent in the office every day, apart from engineers visiting to collect parts, for three months. And she found that very stressful because that was in the middle 
uh, probably about summer last year where it was kind of wasn't locked down. It was locked down, but it wasn't enforced stay at home, I think. So she was feeling very uncomfortable here about being the only one in the office. She couldn't fight back. She couldn't push back to the company and say, well, actually, I don't feel it's safe. She could have worked from home because, lo and behold, when the stay-at-home order was given in, in December, magically she was given a laptop, magically she was given a phone. So she could work from home. So we know that she could have back then. And, of course, now what happened is early April, the government advice kind of changed, and then they wanted everyone back in the office. But we know she can work effectively from home. And so their culture and their organization is is one about pushing people back into the office, knowing full well that they work very adequately um, spread disparately from home because they have the cost of the office. They've got a traditional kind of management structure where they want to see people and count people and check they're there. And they haven't evolved. They're not evolving. And this is, okay, there was, I say there was a small business, probably 50, 60 people. But given that most people in the UK are employed by small, medium businesses, 67%, I think it is, that that pervasive culture is going to be within our society and people are going to be pushed back. And organizations, because they're paying three thousand pounds a month for their office, they wanna they wanna get some value from it. Sure. So that's it's an engineering firm. My wife works for a um yeah, it's a installation service company for heavy plant, yeah. Right. So I wonder whether there's gonna be a distinction between the the more um, mechanical engineering, you know, traditionally, <laughs> I guess, masculine type organizations compared to, to others. Um, so, creative, you, yeah, exactly. Artisan, marketing, yeah, white collar type stuff, yeah. Exactly. Are you, um, do you, do you speak of a vestige? I don't. I don't speak for Vistage, no, but I know of them. Okay, so I'd I, I'd speak for Vistage, and and so they're a global organisation, and um, it's for for MDs and CEOs from um, small um, to medium sized businesses, predominantly, um, and different groups all around the world. And so I'd, I speak um, for Vistage. So I'd, I through the pandemic and before that, um, was speaking to different Vistage groups around the UK. And through the pandemic, what I've noticed is, is that, you know, for in those organizations where it's more about, you know, sort of engineering or factories or, you know, those kinds of organizations and um, companies, then there's been much more of a push to go back to the workplace. And and clearly it would be if you've got factory workers, you know, if, you, if they're manufacturing product, yeah. they need to be in the well, Yeah, you have to. Right? Yeah, you have to put um, something in boxes and, and yeah. pack and load and return, yeah. So but, no, the area my wife works in is the office side, and they have field engineers. Yeah. So they, they don't manufacture, they have field engineers they service, and they they bring in stock to install. They don't manufacture stock not in that office. So yeah, it's, 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 I think it's tradition. It's just the office exists. Therefore we'll use culture. it. Yeah. The perspective and the perception. Whereas on the other side, you know, I, I've heard um, a number of the banks, so I think Metro bank, they've closed down their um, office in London. You know, everyone is going to be. In Auburn, yeah. Big office yeah. there. Yeah. Right. So everyone is going to be working from, from home now. And you think about the Googles and the Facebooks and, you know, the large um, advertising firms and all, all of those, all, a lot of my clients, they're, they're not going back to work for the foreseeable. <laughs> Many of them possibly won't. 
So, yeah. But, that, but that's a challenge for the government, for infrastructure, because then what do you do with all the trains? What do you do with the, all the underground? What do you do with the public services and transport in, in, in the cities? What do you do with all the sandwich bars and the infrastructure is built up around servicing those office blocks? So it's a real dilemma for government yeah. and infrastructure to be able to make sure that you're not losing jobs in one hand by creating flexible jobs on the other. Exactly. Because yeah. if the city of London empties, just think of the millions or certainly hundreds of thousands of people whose jobs are at risk because there's no one for them to service anymore. That's right. And you also think about the psychological impact that it's having on us as humans. You know, I used to travel around all the time. I'd be, you know, on a train to London, four days out of five, possibly one day out of the weekend, always, always like hauling my bag around and doing my thing, you know, live in person. And now, you know, now even though it's, things have opened up, just the thought of going up to London, is just like a bit of an effort. Do you know? Don't want to. It's got to be bothered. And so, you know, we just need to get out more as well, I think, as human beings. Otherwise, we're going to forget how to be sociable and how to, to, to practice those kind of interpersonal skills that we all need to bring richness and life to to ourselves and to the world. And we do need to learn how to break through that. But I often say that people keep saying we need to socialize at work about how work is this magic thing where we meet partners, we develop relationships, all those things. I said, well, how about we, we change the paradigm? I say, we actually need to socialize at home and locally. If we have more time in our lives without community, more time in our lives where we have the flexibility at home, then maybe we have more time in our lives to do extracurricular activities, join a club, join society, have a hobby, do outside interests. And we can bring that socialization into our home environment and not feel that we've missed it from our work environment. I think we keep trying to retrain ourselves back into the office to say, well, that's where we get our socialization, only because that's our mindset. We've, we've commuted for two hours there and two hours back. By the time we get home at eight o'clock in the evening, we're burnt out. Right. We don't want to socialize at home. And if I get, if I, if I finish work at five 30, I turn my computer off, I stand up and it's sunny. I'll sit in the garden, right. have a cup of coffee, enjoy the sun, or I might go for a walk or go for a cycle or do something else. I've definitely got the freedom of choice about what I want to engage in. But I think when we're slave to the rhythm, you're know, slave to that the machine of work then that's what people are trying to force us back into is, is, to, is to switch back into the old way of thinking. And I think we need to just change what I want from life is less commuting, less time where I'm, I have no control over myself and more opportunity to live my life and that work-life balance, yet still work hard, deliver, yeah. earn a good living, and and be in contact with people. So it's trying to find that balance. Um, it is. I, yeah. Yeah. What what are your thoughts? I certainly don't on, want to um, end up on a plane you, you're not I don't want to fly around the world anymore. Don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> you know, you don't see yourself back on a stage in San Francisco. <laughs> I think I would do it differently. I think might say yes I mean, I've got Francisco. I've got I've, I've got an opportunity <laughs> to speak in Newcastle at the end of June. And I've got a bit of anxiety about that because the talk I'm giving, I created virtually online. Right. I've never given this, this talk face to face. So I've kind of got this stage anxiety about, you know, I've currently got monitors, I've got screens, yeah. I've got lights, and I've got all this control with a push of a button. And suddenly I'm now vulnerable on a stage yeah. trying to engage with real people. Wow. That's, You're going to love it. You're going to absolutely love it. <laughs> I think, yeah, just sort of questioning whether, 
how I feel about going back out there and delivering, you know, whether it's courses or whether it's keynoting live again. And I never thought I'd say this, but there's a lot to be said from for just doing it from your office. Um, and you can sparkle, you can engage, and you can get amazing feedback, even if you're speaking to like a blank screen and staring into your camera, you can still get the vibe that you could still feel when you're connecting, can't you? Yeah. I mean, I used to find it really challenging to deliver where I couldn't see the audience, so, you know, a traditional webinar format where you literally, you, everyone can see you, but you can't see anybody. Yeah. I, find, I used to find that really hard, but I saw nobody. But suddenly my brain just gone, it's okay, I know they're there. Right. It doesn't matter, I know, that, I know <laughs> they're there. I know, I know they can hear me. And I get a round of applause at the end, so I'm fine. But what I still struggle with is the pre-record. So I'm talking to the camera. I can't go over that that not live because my brain knows it's not live. My brain says, Oh, I made a mistake. Let's do that again. Yeah, oh, I do I that know again. That one. yeah. Yeah. Whereas if I'm delivering it live, my brain knows that it's a one take and it's fine. But as soon as I know I can edit it, my brain just crumbles. Yeah. I've, got to, I've got to try and learn how to talk to that black mirror yeah. with nobody on the other side of it. And one take in the same way I yeah. would, even if I couldn't see the audience. And that's, that's what I struggle with. I guess it's that perfectionism that we were talking about right at the start, isn't it? It just starts rearing its head. It's like, oh, it could be better. It could be better. You could do it again. Oh, come on, let's do it again then. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm delivering a, a talk to the, the French Professional Speakers Association. I think it's next month. And when I applied, I thought, okay, that sounds good. I knew it was going to be online. And I get an email saying, oh, we want all the speakers to send a pre-recorded video and then be available on the day yeah. to do like a live Q&A after the event. I thought, oh, you want me to record this? And I, I had a deadline. Of, I think it was last Friday or the Friday before. Yeah. And I left it to, like we do. You leave it to the last minute yeah. and you think, well, okay, <laughs> I've got I've got the opportunity here for three takes. I delivered the first one. I was eight minutes over. I thought, okay, oh. I'm going to try and chop eight minutes <laughs> off of this. Delivered the second one. And I was so worried about going over yeah. that – I kind of lost my train. I felt unnatural. <laughs> and I watched it back. I thought, I loved the, the energy in the first one, but it was too long. The energy in the second one, I thought it was a bit flat, but it was just the right length. I thought, yeah. okay, I've just got to send you the one that's the right length. I've just got to send it to you. And I'm being overcritical. I, I know it was probably my own mindset that I was wrestling with yeah. rather than what I delivered. So I sent it off to them and they said it was great. It's fine. Right. It's, it's on the agenda. So. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's, that is a classic glass brick you just described there. It's like, it needs to be perfect and we're not going to get there. I remember when I applied for my TEDx and again, I kind of left it until the last minute. I got an email on the day before saying, well, thank you for the written submission, but we need a video from you. And I open, only opened that email when we, we were literally drawing driving down to the Kent coast to go camping. And I was like, oh, well, normally if I was going to record something like that, I'd get it all set up, do the lighting, make it all nice, da-da-da. But I was in a field with my phone. <laughs> so I slapped on some lippy and my family was like, Antoinette, why are you putting lipstick on now? We're camping. I was like, I just need to go and do something in the car. <laughs> Put myself in the car and there were people putting tents up all around us. Noise of, you know, you know, children running around and stuff. And I just recorded this thing and managed to get just about enough reception to send it and sent it. 
And it was fine. You think, well, I should put so much pressure on ourselves to make things perfect. I know, I know, I know. When actually, you know, the first take is good enough. Yeah, and there's a huge psychological difference between live and recording yourself. And I, I, I'm sure you, you probably felt the same there, that suddenly you've got this this perception, because you can watch it back and go, oh, I don't like that. Yeah. But if you're live, you don't see yourself, do you? And no. you, I, I never watch I never watch the recordings of me back. It's, I, I wouldn't want to do that to myself. Oh, I do. <laughs> I, I watch the recordings back you know, cause I, I always ask my clients if I can record it and, you know, put together show reels and things. And I watch them back and I'm like, Oh, I remember that bit when I fluffed that thing or do said that completely wrong or forget, forgot to do. I remember that, that laughing to myself on the inside of my head and pressing on regardless. And I often say this to people when I'm coaching them around that, you know, how, how they're like, Oh God, you know, I'm worried that I'm going to forget something and all this. No one knows and no one cares. Even if they do notice, they don't care. So just have a little laugh on the inside and keep going. And actually it makes you more authentic, doesn't it? Yeah, you're right completely. And I've, I have listened to some of my stuff back when I've gone to subtitle it and things like this. And what I realize is there are so many times when I'm speaking and I don't finish the sentence. <laughs> I get halfway through a sentence and then go off on something else. I think... I didn't make what I just said just didn't make sense. I didn't feel what I was going to say. That's there. deliberate, like, though, isn't it, though, Joanne? That's a nested loop right there. You open the loop and then you come back to it later, don't you? <laughs> I think that's oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it just goes to show that when we're talking in real life, that we must do that all the time. It, conversation gets interrupted, sentence gets interrupted, we wander off, we come back. And but when we listen to ourselves, we, we spot this because we knew what we were going to say. We yeah, didn't right. say it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's what makes a lovely, authentic conversational style. I think. I mean, we we don't like that sort of back to the statesman like gravitas. I'm going to deliver a powerful message. You know, it's all scripted in advance. We, oh, the Toastmaster style. Oh yeah, God, it just doesn't work, does it? I remember coaching this guy, and it was it was a two day authentic presentation skills course in America, and there was a guy, and he came in, and he is like one of those classic kind of silver head fox types, and I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting, and um, he said, yeah, I've taught myself, I've ironed out every verbal tick, I have no more so's and likes and you knows and things like that, and it was true when we, he first did his first presentation. It was like this is like listening to an actual robot, because it was just it was just message, message, message delivered completely dispassionately, and it's like right, we need to bring back some of you into the way you talk. By the end of the second day, it was so much more engaging. So I think you know. Often people get coached, do this, do that, talk deeper, you know, leave these things out, say this, be authentic, you know, do this gesture. And you end up ironing out the whole Hold the podium like this and a power pose. And, I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what if people get told, fake it till you make it? It's like, for goodness sake, please don't do that. You know, don't try and be somebody else until you finally figured out who you are. Start with who you are. And build out from there. People will love you for it. People will love you for being you. If you love yourself, you're happy with yourself, be yourself. And that's, exactly. that's all you can ever ask, isn't it? That's what moves people. Yeah. 
that, that, and, and we all need to come back to that, I think. Because when we do, well, we've been, we might change we've been rabbiting on as we, <laughs> as we have. We're absolutely engaging conversation. And so how, tell, tell us a bit more about your book. Tell us a bit more about how people can get in contact with you. And, yeah, please, yeah, tell us all about that. Okie dokes. Well, there are two books. There is the Leading with Gravitas, and I've literally just about to launch the second edition of that on the 4th of June. Uh, in three weeks' time from now, and that is all around what this intangible thing called gravitas is, how you can create your own version of it rather than trying to be like anybody else. There's a whole load of content in there around remote communication and how you can make the most of communicating in a virtual environment. There's a brand new chapter on leading yourself, your teams, your organizations leading through change. So that's the first one. Um, and then the second one is the one that I mentioned launching a year ago, which is Power Up, the smart woman's guide to unleashing her potential. And and really, that's for anyone who wants to accelerate their career um, through their organization um, by starting with who they are. Both of those you can get on my website or Amazon or any online bookstore. So those are the books. And then if people are interested in working with me, I run a couple of um, open programs. There's a Gravitas Masterclass a couple of times a year that people can come along to. There's a two-day Gravitas for Women course. All information on all of that is on my website, AntoinetteDaleHenderson.com, as well as information on my coaching as well. Simply LinkedIn, people can track you down there. Yeah, find me LinkedIn and Instagram, um, Antoinette Dale Henderson. And yeah, come and say hi if you've got any questions. Let's link in, let's connect. And um, I would love to have a conversation with you. I'll put all of those details in the show notes. So if you look below, you can click on them and, and find out. So, well, thank you. I really enjoyed that. I could have carried on talking for another hour. It's absolutely amazing and fascinating to have a, a really deep conversation with you. I really so enjoyed for, it as I, well. Thank you. Yeah, brilliant. And a huge thank you to the listener. I'm amazing that you stuck with us. Um, tell us what you think. Um, if you've got uh, friends and colleagues, please tell them. I'm sure that you're not alone. So please do tell them about the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Do subscribe to keep updates on future episodes. Uh, I've got a number of other exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be inspired by over the next few weeks and months. And of course, if you'd like to be a guest, let me know. I'd welcome any comments, feedback, or suggestions on how we can improve the show to email me joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. So finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood, and it's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.